Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we've been going through the book of Revelation, um, and uh, we're here at chapter 9. Last, uh, last week we were in chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts uh, the opening of what's known as the trumpet judgments. And chapter 8 dealt with the first four trumpets. And uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do, you know, I don't want to just pour out information or, or, or just kind of dump, give you an information dump on prophecy because, I mean, it's great. I think it's good to understand prophecy. But, um, you know, whenever I read Scripture, I always take it and go, well, what does it mean to me? I mean, how does it apply to me right now? And so one of the things that I've been prayerfully trying to do and trying to, trying to present to you is, is what's the application for us? And in chapter 8 last week, we saw the Lord's heart. Even in the midst of those trumpet judgments, there's a few things that we saw last week. First of all, we saw God's reluctance to execute his, wrath, uh, his righteous wrath on the wicked. Because we recall in the beginning of that chapter, before that first trumpet blast, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. And, and the Bible says in Isaiah 28 that God's judgment on mankind is his unusual act, his strange act. That's in uh, Isaiah 28, verse 21. And we looked at that last week. Also in Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So God is reluctant to pour out, to mete out judgment on, this, on, on a wicked world. And so there's that 30 minutes of silence. So we saw God's reluctance there. We also saw his faithfulness, his faithfulness to answer the prayers of his saints. Uh, you know, down through the ages, saints have prayed, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and now we see in that trumpet judgment uh, in chapter 8, we see those prayers finally answered uh, before the Lord. Um, many saints, and maybe you yourself have prayed this, you know, cried out, Lord, how long before you return? Or how long, Lord, will, will wickedness reign on the earth? I mean, last week with the shootings in the school there in Florida, how long will this continue, Lord? When will, when will righteousness reign on this earth? And we know from the Bible it won't happen until Jesus returns, right, to reign for a thousand years. But every time we've cried out those prayers, they're finally being answered. So we saw God's faithfulness to answer his prayers. If you're in a situation right now, and I want to encourage you, maybe you're praying through something, you're praying for something, or there's just something that's just been, you've just been dealing with a long time, and, and it seems like God hasn't answered you yet. I, I want to encourage you, don't give up, because God is faithful. He will pray, or he will answer your prayers. My wife prayed 20 years for her sister to come to faith, 20 years and eventually she came to faith in the Lord. And so God answers prayer. Um, but it's always in his timing. And so, so we saw his faithfulness. We also saw his restraint in the midst of pouring out his righteous wrath upon the earth. Even as these trumpet judgments, God's wrath is starting to be poured out on the earth. We see restraint in that because of only a third of each thing is being destroyed. Where he righteously... Could have destroyed everything, but instead he's holding back and, and only a third is destroyed rather than the whole. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's giving people on earth, even during the great tribulation, time to repent and turn to him. Those first four trumpets, by the, way, by the way, they directly impact the earth, the physical geography of the earth, and they indirectly impact mankind. 
But now as we get to chapter 9, these are known as the woe trumpets. There's three trumpets. And uh, woe means it's an exclamation of grief. And these three, uh, so the first four trumpets indirectly impacted mankind, directly impacted creation. But these last three trumpets are going to directly impact mankind himself. And again, I try to look for application. And so in chapter 9, there's three things that I see that I think we might be encouraged by or or at least educated with. But that's God's sovereignty. We're going to see that in chapter 9. We're also going to see Satan's character, his true character. And then finally, we're going to see man's heart. So we'll see those three things in chapter 9. So let's begin here with verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. This is the fifth trumpet. Then the angels, uh, then, excuse me, then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now you'll recall in chapter 8, verse 10, John saw a great star that fell from heaven. In other words, he saw, he saw a star falling from heaven. He saw, the, he saw it happen. It was a present tense situation but here in verse one he sees a fallen star that word the greek word is peptocoda uh pep yeah peptocoda not peptobismal but it sounds kind of like it um it's a perfect active participle of pipto which means already down so i guess maybe that's more information that you want to know but basically what he saw is that the star had already fallen in the past, and it's in a fallen state. That's what the Greek is is implying here. Now, in chapter 8, one of the things that I've done, and I always do when I, when I look at prophecy, I always look for the literal fulfillment first. The literal, you know, is this a literal thing or is it symbolic? And I'm always looking for the literal unless it becomes obvious that it's symbolic. And in chapter 8, I said there was no reason not to believe that those were literal, maybe asteroids or meteorites or something similar. There's no reason not to believe them. But here, this fallen star, I think we can safely say, is not to be taken literally. Why is that? Well, you notice it says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So this, this star is a him. Um, it's in other words, it's an individually, and more specifically, it's a fallen individual. You know, in Job thirty-eight verse seven, the Bible says, or the Bible refers to angels as stars, and we know from Scripture that Lucifer is a created angel that led a rebellion against God in heaven, and so I think this is probably this star, this falling star, this fallen star is probably referring to Lucifer himself. Isaiah 14, 12, we read, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. He's a fallen angel. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out the 70 to go and to to, to minister the gospel, to share about the the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, is here. And and they return, and he's given them authority over demons and and to do miracles. And they return, and and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name, uh, subject to us in your name. And Jesus said in verse 18 of Luke 10, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he goes on to them, he says, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase. He basically says, hey, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life, that your name is, is, is written in heaven. 
sometimes we can get kind of, our focus can get off sometimes. Well, to this individual, it says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, that's another concept that's kind of interesting. What is the bottomless pit? The Greek word is, uh, we call it, some of your Bibles might even say the abyss, but it's the Greek word abusos. And it's an old adjective, bottomless is, it means without depth. In other words, there's no bottom, thus bottomless. Um, And then that word, the pit, it's an old word for a well or a cistern. And so if you put it together, it's, it's like this pit is like kind of like a well shaft that leads to this abusos. Uh, now in the east, in the Middle East, the well shafts there, because water was a precious commodity, well shafts, well shafts were often covered and locked uh, so that no one would steal your water or fill it with dirt or whatever. You had an enemy. And so this is where this word comes from. And it's interesting as I was doing some research on this, some commentators, uh, they believe, believe that the abusos or this abyss is literally located in the depth of the earth at its center. Because if you think about it, when you get to the center of the earth, everywhere is up, right? You can't go, do- you can't go lower than the center. So it's bottomless in that sense. And it's like, okay. Um, so whether or not this abusos, this shaft that, le- this pit that leads to the bottomless, or the shaft that leads to this bottomless pit, whether or not it's physically located on the earth, I have one word of advice, and that is, if you ever find, you know, let's say you buy a piece of property and you find this little cover with a lock on it, don't unlock it. Unless you can, that's, well, I'll explain that later. Actually, Jesus has the keys to it. We'll look at that later. <laughs> um, so what is the abusos? The abusos is speaking of, in the Old Testament, it's speaking of Hades, or it's also known as Sheol. We would call it hell in the New Testament. Uh, Hades, or Sheol, evidently was compartmentalized. You recall when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, he was an unrighteous man. He, was, he died and he was tormented in Hades or in Sheol. And then the poor man, righteous Lazarus, he was comforted in Abraham's bosom in Sheol. And there was a great gulf that separated the two compartments. Well, evidently, it seems to be anyways that this abyss, uh, there's a third compartment, this abyss that's reserved for the worst of the worst fallen angels. And I think there's some scriptural basis for that. In Jude 1 verse 6, Jude is speaking of this. He says of the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So evidently there's these angels that are right now, they're, they're, they're locked up. They're chained up in darkness. Peter kind of alludes to the same thing in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Um, so we, we see kind of this, this theme coming up here. Now, what are, the, what are these verses I just quoted from Jude and in Peter? What are they speaking about? Well, they could be referring, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but they could be referring to the time described right prior to the flood in the book of Genesis. Prior to Noah's flood, the earth was filled with incredible violence and wickedness. The scripture says that the sons of God, during this time, the sons of God, which is referring to angels, fallen angels, went into the daughters of men, and the result was a race of giants. Goliath was one of those giants that came from that race. 
you know, some people ignorantly joke about hell. You know, I, I'm, all my friends are going to be there. You've probably heard that phrase before, or, you know, it's like it's going to be a party in hell or wh whatever they say. Um, but listen, we were in, in Mark's gospel. We, we've been going through Mark on Wednesday nights, and we came across this story. But in Luke chapter 8, it's the same story. <laughs> Jesus heals that man that was filled with many demons, right? He was, in the, he was in the country of the Gadarenes, across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asked the man who's demon-possessed, he says, what's your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And in verse 31 of chapter 8, it says, and they begged him, these demons, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So evidently, this is not a place you want to be, right? And these, these demons, they, they begged the Lord not to send him, in, send him into the abyss. And uh, so they asked Jesus to allow them to possess a herd of swine that were grazing near, nearby. And Jesus permitted them to do that. And the swines, swine, I guess that's plural, swines, whatever. The swine committed suicide. So, um, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I try so hard. <laughs> okay. Anyways. <laughs> you guys have heard the deviled ham joke too many times, so that doesn't get a laugh anymore. So I've got to start something new. So suicide. Okay. Anyways. Um, like I said, I don't want to really get dogmatic about this and say this is what this is. You know, some people, when it comes to this kind of prophecy, they get really into it. I mean, they just like, this is their focus, you know, and stuff. And, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to do this. Um, but... Like I said earlier, if there's a, a, a literal pit or shaft that leads to the abyss in the center of the earth, um, what's interesting is when that, when that cover is lifted, and we'll see that shortly, that smoke billows out uh, and darkens the atmosphere on earth. So it's probably not a symbolic thing. It probably is a literal thing. Now, whether it's on the earth or not, um, I don't know. But like I said, if you find a sh literal shaft on the earth that leads to the abyss... Don't, don't open it up. But you won't be able to, right? Um, because in Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I have the keys of Hades and death. So Jesus has the keys. But that leads to some interesting observations because if this angel, this fallen angel, is in fact Lucifer, and, uh, and Jesus has the keys, as he just said in, John, in Revelation 1 verse 8, now, I'll, if this is true, then Lucifer's given the key to the bottomless pit. And that really raises up some bothering questions. That's, some, that's, that's like, what is going on here? Well, first of all, the idea that Satan is the master of hell, and that's kind of what people that don't know scriptures, that's kind of their concept, that, that, that Satan rules over hell or something. Listen, Hell, Satan is not hell's ruler. He's hell's victim. And one day, he himself is going to be cast into this abyss for a thousand years. We'll see that when we get further on in chapter 20. But the second question, and this is probably the bigger question, is why would Satan, if it is in fact Lucifer, why would he be given a key to the bottomless pit? Why? What's the purpose in that? And I don't know the answer. <laughs> but I do know this, and this is one of the things that I think we see in chapter 9, God is sovereign. And God in his sovereignty is allowing Satan, somehow in some respects, Satan is fulfilling God's purposes in this. And, you know, my, some people will say, well, it's, it's just God's executing his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. I, I think that's true. But on the other hand, I also think 
God is giving the world a chance to see true, Satan's true character. Because even now, people, you know, Satan worshipers or people that are, you know, they're into the occult and it, it seems so innocuous. It seems kind of like a cool thing to be, you know, have a pentagram and be, you know, have the tattoos and be into that kind of music and stuff. And it seems like a cool thing. And what they don't realize is demonic oppression and demonic possession is terrible. It's terrible. And uh, so I think in some aspect, and I'm not saying this is why God's doing this, but I think in some respect, God is showing the world, that the, the people that will be alive during this time, what Satan's true character is like. Because look at this in verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, I believe these are literal creatures, but not locusts as we know them today. Locusts that we know today, they're herbivores, herbivores, excuse me. Um, you know, they eat vegetation. These locusts, they eat no vegetation. In Proverbs 30.27, it says, The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. And yet, we'll see in verse 11, that these locusts have a king over them. So these aren't literal locusts as we know them, but they are creatures that in some respect resemble locusts or remind John of locusts. Verse, nine, or excuse me, verse 4, They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We saw earlier 144,000 Jewish men who are going to be sealed during the Great Tribulation. Obviously, they're not going to be afflicted by these locusts. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says this, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You know, when you and I come to faith in Christ Jesus, the Bible says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's a guarantee. He's a, he, he, we're, we're sealed. You have eternal life when you, when you pray to receive Christ in your heart, you're repenting of your sins. You have eternal life. You have this seal upon you. Well, during the Great Tribulation, because I believe at this point the church is raptured at this point, prior to this, I should say. Um, and there's Tribulation saints that, have not been probably martyred at this point, because many of them, in fact, probably a great majority of them will have been martyred. There may be some of those that are still alive that they'll have the seal on them. So they might, they probably will not. I mean, I'm going to say more than likely, they won't be attacked by these locusts either. Only those who don't have the seal of God on them. Verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the tor torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And it's kind of, you know, people can get into the symbolic. They, they take this whole scripture and they make it all symbolic of stuff. And they have these answers for what the five months means. But I think it's interesting that a desert locust lives a total of about three to five months. So it's just interesting. I just looked it up. Um, but it says here that their, their torment, their torment was like, not wasn't the torment of a scorpion, but was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Has anyone here been bitten by or stung by a scorpion? Anybody? Okay, you have. 
Oh, then you probably know. Well, listen, the Arizona bark scorpion. Okay, so uh, if you're from Arizona or you've been down there, uh, this is what I, I was looking up. This is what a doctor describes a sting from a, an Arizona bark scorpion. She says it gets worse and worse and worse. If you're an adult and you get the poison in your finger, it just stays and fires your pain nerve. It locks the nerve in the on position. It will send shooting sensations up your arm. That's in other words, if you just got it on your finger, it'll shoot shooting sensations up your arm. If you're clumsy enough to tap or bump that finger on anything, the pain instantly amplifies. You just give it a tap and you're screaming in pain. Just that one little spot hurts like heck. It radiates up to your armpit with this throbbing pain, but there's nothing to see. And then she finishes her article. She says, I tend to give out morphine like candy. <laughs> so <laughs> it's bad, right? Is, is it bad? It's bad. Okay. Um, so this torment is like the sting of a scorpion. Verse 6, it says, In those days men will seek death, and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. This is a very terrible thing we're reading about here. Now, I, I saw this article that just came out, this a professor at some college um, speaking about the school shooting in Florida. This professor, he basically said, where was God when the shooting took place? And he's obviously an atheist, and he's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, supporting his belief that there is no God, because if there was a God, and, and he would have interacted and prevented these children from being, from being killed, you know. And, and I, you know, to be honest with you, I saw that article, and I thought, man, you know, if you don't believe in God, or, you know, maybe you're, you're on the, you know, you're just not sure and stuff, and things like this happen, I think it's a fair question to ask. Where was God? I do think there's an answer for it. And I could spend another hour, we could go into it, because I've been really reflecting on that. You know, why does God allow things like that to happen? But listen, his whole thinking is that if God is righteous, he would prevent these children from being killed, and the teachers from being, from being killed. He would have prevented it. I mean, here we get to this chapter, and here men, they're going to be so tormented that they want to die. They're going to want to commit suicide. And they're not going to be permitted to commit suicide. The torment's going to be so terrible, they'll attempt suicide, but God will not allow them to die for five months. Dr. Henry Morris, in his book, The Revelation Record, he says this, Guns misfire. Knives slip from their grasp. Poisons lose their potency. Men cripple and injure themselves, but somehow they can't kill themselves. And before they, try, before they can try again, they must suddenly flee another of these ubiquitous, pursuing, locust-like demons. Just, if, it's hard to wrap our brains around this. We might say, well, why would God do this? And you might say, well, it's, it's God's wrath, you know, in a Christ-rejecting world. And, and yeah, I, I think so, but I, I, I think there's more to it than that. I think God in his mercy, by not allowing them to die for five months, is giving mankind on earth a taste of what it's going to be like for them in the lake of fire. In, in, in the lake of fire. Because in that place, there will be continually 
tormented eternally. And you can't die from it. You know, death would be like the escape. You, you won't be able to escape from an, eternal, an eternity in the lake of fire. And so maybe at this point, God is giving them this five months of this, this just what it's going to be like for them if they continue to rebel against God and reject him, that this is what it's going to be like in the lake of hell. And, and, and maybe it's like, well, maybe now they'll repent. Of course, we'll see man's heart at the end of this chapter. But John gives us a description of these locusts, verse 7. He says, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sounds of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, their power was to hurt men five months. One of the things that you'll notice in this is that John says like or as many times. And I've said this earlier and I'll say this again. Whenever John sees something that he doesn't, he can't, it's not exactly, it's like he doesn't say it's this. But he'll say uh, it's like something because he, maybe he's never seen it before or he just doesn't know how to describe it. And so he says their shape was like horses prepared for battle. They had crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like lion's teeth. So, you know, if I, I, one of the things I tried to do some graphics and stuff, and I thought, you know, I don't want to put a graphic, or graphic up because it wouldn't be true. Because it, it's, all this is, it's like this stuff. So who knows? John has never seen these before. Some people say, well, this is maybe like modern mechanized weaponry. I think it was Hal Lindsey in the great late, uh, great, late great planet Earth said that this possibly could be like attack helicopters. And, you know, it could be. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. But I think if we just accept this as John describes them, these are demonic beings. And he's just trying to give us a description of what they look like. And notice he says they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. In other words, the implication is that they're not able to be destroyed. They're not able to be destroyed by man anyways. And that they have wings, which be the implication is that they can attack swiftly. And then the sound of their wings, they can be heard approaching. Can you imagine that? You hear, all of a sudden you hear, it's like, they're coming again. There's these demons coming. They're striking dread in the inhabitants of the earth at this time. Now Joel in the Old Testament, prophesies of a coming locust invasion in his day. And it was a literal locust invasion. It was a judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. It's in Joel chapter 2. And it had a near prophetic fulfillment because it was a literal locust invasion as, as a judgment against, against uh, uh, Judah. But it also has a far prophetic fulfillment. And I think Joel might, could very well have also been speaking of this time that John is speaking about here in John 9. Because listen to Joel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but you can listen if you want. Joel 2, and I'm reading 1 through 10. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will ever have been such after them, even for many successive generations. 
A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With the noise of like chariots over the mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another, everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. And I don't know if I made this clear before, but I, I, again, I think John is or Joel is describing also this prophetic. Uh, happening here with this trumpet here in, in chapter 9. But if I didn't say this before, I think that these locusts, these are basically demons that have been locked up in the abyss that are going to be released. Verse 11, it says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he, Greek he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon means destruction, Apollyon means destroyer. And I think this is where Satan's true character is revealed to the world. You know, Jesus describes Satan, he says he was a murderer from the beginning. There's no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of it. And Jesus said the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I think Satan's true colors are being revealed here. He hates mankind. And he's going to, you know, he's given this little opportunity in God's sovereign wisdom. And he's going to unlock this, this, maybe he's thinking he's going to get away with something. And he's going to unlock this cover and these demons are going to come out. And they are going to torment mankind on earth during the great tribulation. Verse 12, it says, one woe is past. Behold, still more, uh, still two more woes are coming after these things. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The altar, uh, the golden altar, which is before God. We talked about that last week. I think it is the altar of incense that we saw in chapter 8. This was where the prayers of the saints were mixed with the incense of Christ's suffering to ascend uh, before the throne of God. Now, what's the significance of the horns of the altar? Well, we know that the, the brazen altar has horns on it, uh, but if this altar also has horns on it, what's the significance? Again, I don't really know. Um, John Walverd says this, if the horns have significance... They refer to the sovereignty and the judicial government of God. And I think chapter 9 is pregnant with God's sovereignty, as I'll explain it in a little bit here. So there's a voice that comes from the four horns of this golden altar. It says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
Now, the fact that these angels are bound tells me that they're not good angels. <laughs> okay. It tells me that they are, in fact, evil angels or demons. What's the significance of the Euphrates River? That's an interesting, that's an interesting question. We know from the book of Genesis that this was one of the rivers that uh, emerged from the Garden of Eden. It was on one side of the Garden of Eden. We also know in the flood in Genesis chapter 7 that that river would have been, I mean, the entire earth was completely geographically changed as a result of the upheaval of the earth. And so this the, the Euphrates River, like right now, the Euphrates River exists, right, in, in Iraq. It's, I could probably say safely, it's not the same river that was prior to the flood. Okay, I, I think that's, I don't know, I, I, that's where I think anyways. <laughs> but after Noah and his family emerged from the flood, they saw one of these new rivers, and they named it Euphrates in memory of the original Euphrates. So it was at this new Euphrates River after the flood in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, there was a guy named Nimrod that built uh, the great city of Babylon. And Nimrod, we're told in chapter, I think it's in chapter 11, that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And what it implies is that he was a hunter of souls in the face of the Lord or against the Lord. In other words, he's the first type or picture of the Antichrist in the Bible. That all occurred in that region by the Euphrates River in Babylon. We also know the Tower of Babylon was erected there. And also the mystery religion of Babylon was founded there. In other words, that region seems to have been a demonic stronghold from the beginning of man's history. And so I think that's the significance. These angels evidently were bound here. They were chained here. And now they're being released Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the day, uh, excuse me, for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Do you get a hint of God's sovereignty here? They were prepared for that day and hour, month and year. These four angels had been prepared you recall that in the book of Jonah, remember Jonah was the prophet that God said to go to Nineveh to, uh, to, to preach to them to repent, and he didn't want to go, so he tried to, he tried to get away from them. He got on a ship heading to Tarsus, and the, the, he ended up getting cast out of the ship because God caused a storm on, on, the, on, the, on the Mediterranean Sea there, and, and, uh, and then a, a great fish swallowed him up, right? And some people say, well, it's just a, you know, like, yeah, I can't believe that. But listen, the Bible says the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Again, God had prepared. Uh, the purpose, what was the purpose? It was for Jonah's discipline, right? It wasn't to destroy Jonah. It was to discipline Jonah so that Jonah would eventually, he would go and do God's will and go preach to the Nineveh. Well, these four angels had been prepared for the purpose of God's wrath. And what was it for? To re- they were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, last week when we talked about the fourth seal, the fourth seal, when that was opened in Revelation, actually Revelation 6 was a couple weeks ago, a fourth of mankind were killed, a fourth of the human population, and now a third more are killed. If you do your math, it's well over a half of the population that's on the planet during this time 
will have been killed. Uh, and not to mention those that died from the other seals. Remember, they indirectly impacted uh, the, the, the mankind. And then these trumpet judgments. So a tremendous amount of people having been killed during this time. Verse 16. Now the army of the uh, now the number of the army of the horsemen was two hundred million, and I heard the number of them. And some people get a little bit confused, and and it's easy to do. Is this is this the same as the kings of the east that gather at Armageddon chapter sixteen? And we'll get to that when we get to that chapter. Well, possibly could be, but listen, an army of two hundred million seems almost impossible to comprehend, even in today's population numbers. I got a slide here I want to show you the, as, as far as the amount of, of active military. China ranks the world in the most uh, men or women in the active military of 2 million, just over 2 million. India is the next highest with uh, uh, 1.3 million. Uh, the United States, 1.3 million also. And North Korea, 1.1 million. I mean, that doesn't come close to 200 million. Listen, all the Allied and Axis forces at their peak in World War II were only about 70 million. All the forces that fought in World War II. So is this a literal 200 million uh, that are like described in chapter 16? I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. But I think, this is my opinion, that these are quite possibly more demons. More demons that are under the command of these four demons that were bound at the river. Euphrates. You know, in heaven, there are rankings of angels, right? We have archangels, um, uh, Michael, you know, Gabriel. We have these angels that are, you know, they have higher ranking than other angels. Uh, it seems to be the same thing for demonic forces. Paul in Ephesians 6.12 talks about spiritual warfare, and he mentions principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness. So there's, there's evidently different hierarchy in uh, the demonic world as well. Verse 17. And I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Uh, and with them they do harm. Again, is this? Is he trying to? Is he describing like tanks or? Something? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I do believe quite possibly that he's. These are demons. More demons that are being released on mankind. So what do we do with all this information? Listen, in this chapter so far, I mentioned God's sovereignty. Think about this. Satan is given a key to the bottomless pit. God gives him it. These demonic locusts, with, when the pit's opened up, these demonic lo locusts were given power to afflict men. They were given the power. These locusts are commanded not to harm the grass, only mankind that does not have the seal of God on them. And these locusts are not given authority to kill, only to torment men for five months. Their power and the scope of their freedom is limited by God's sovereignty. I, I can't tell you why. I, I just accept it. But what that tells me right now 
is even in this age that you and I are alive, because this is during the Great Tribulation. I believe the church is raptured by this point. But even in our age right now, God has restricted or limited the scope of demonic affliction. Listen, the worst of the worst of the demons, they're locked up right now. God hasn't even allowed them out in, in our lifetime, in, our, in this world that we're in, in, in our age. So God's sovereign. You know, sometimes we, we give way too much credit, way too much power to the devil. And he, he's not like Jesus's, he's not like the yin and the yang. You know, he's not like, they're not like Jesus or, and the devil are equals. They're not. Equal but opposite, they're not. The devil was a created angel that rebelled against God. Jesus is the creator. So there's not even, they're not even close. But we see God's sovereignty in this. And, and, and if anything, I think I just want to encourage you that God is sovereign over whatever's going on in your life. And he's in control. He's controlling these. They, they're limited to what they can do. And God, you know, whether he allows something in your life, you know, whatever his reasons are, they're his reasons. But God loves you. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And he is on the throne. He is in control. So we've seen God's sovereignty. And we've also seen the true character of Satan. Because all that he wants to do is destroy and kill mankind. Because he hates mankind. Listen, if God had not commanded those locusts not to kill, they would have killed. They're only allowed to torment men. Because Satan is a thief and a murderer and a liar. Listen, I, I want to make this important note here. If at this point in the Great Tribulation, and some people say, you know, at this point there's no hope for mankind. It's just God's just pouring out his wrath until the, until the very end. It's just wrath, wrath, wrath. There's, there's no one turning to the Lord. If in this point in the Great Tribulation there was no more hope for mankind, the following verses would make no sense to me. See, there's still a possibility for those who live alive, who are alive during the Great Tribulation, even at this point when these, when these demonic hordes are released, there's still an po- opportunity for them to repent of their uh, wickedness and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Otherwise, he would have allowed all mankind to be killed by now. But we see man's heart, and this is what I want to close with here. We see man's heart in the following verses. Look at verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. In other words, I think it sounds like they could have, but they did not. They refused to. They did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Listen, even after all of this, and this shows man's heart, even after all of this, they're not repenting of the works of their hands. The works of their hands are the idols that they make, whatever they idolize, that they should not worship demons. Now, Paul says this, and you and I, we know this, right? An idol is nothing, right? An, an, an idol, whatever you worship aside from God, it's nothing. You know, in those days they had little statues, and today's, you know, we have cars or whatever you know possessions that maybe maybe a possession is your idol it's not it's not like animate right it's nothing but there are demons behind the worship of idols there's a demonic influence behind the various idols that mankind worships it says they did not repent of their murders sorceries 
sexual immoralities or thefts. They're murders or they're violence. Right? Jesus said, even if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart. There's sexual immorality. Look at our, even our generation today. That's why I pray for these kids in the morning in the, you know, before they go there. Uh, we had it bad in our generation. Think how much worse it's going to be the sexual influence, the immorality, and, and just the, the blurring of the lines that our children are being faced with in this generation. It's just going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And they're not going to repent of their sexual morality. Neither are they going to repent of their thefts. And I, you know, we might think of someone on the street, you know, mugging you or something. But and it, that's probably part of it. But it's also probably corrupt governments and uh, greedy businesses, you know, thefts in, in whatever form. And they also don't repent of their sorceries. The word sorceries is the word pharmakeia. It's where we get the word pharmacy, and it's referring to drugs. Um, mind-altering, illicit drugs. Listen, sorcery, drug use, it's associated with witchcraft. I'm not talking about, you know, the ibuprofen or whatever the doctors give you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about mind-altering, illicit drugs. There's witchcraft associated with it. How big, think about this, how big is the drug trade, both legal and illegal? It's probably probably one of the biggest, you know, money-making things around I'm guessing and if you can imagine how bad it's going to be during the great tribulation people are going to be searching out drugs because they want an escape right they want to dull the pain not only that they want to provide a mental escape from the torment during those days so the drug use is just going to be over the top even worse than what we see in our in our generation you know even today there's a whole generation of people that are being doled by drugs, by medications. You know, what, what does it do? It creates an apathy, apathy in people. And people that are, their senses are dulled, they're apathetic, man, they are ripe for deception. They're ripe for deception. And we have a whole generation that's being made mentally and spiritually ready for the coming Antichrist. And I don't think it's too long far away from us, folks. Listen, you want to get a rush? And I know some people, I, you know, people that, I, hopefully nobody here is involved in drugs and illegal drugs, but, you know, some people, they, they want the rush. You know, I want, I, want, I want to experience, or maybe I want to heighten my sensory experiences or whatever. Um, or, you know, my, my life is so mundane, I want to just add a thrill to it. You want to have a thrill in your life? <laughs> Give your heart to Jesus. Not only that, fully surrender your will to his because giving your heart to Jesus is one thing, but fully surrendering your heart, your will to His, and living a life of being stretched by faith, saying, "Lord, I just take me into, take me to a place where I am at, where I, where I can't do nothing but pray because I, I can't see it in front of me." You do that, you're going to have a rush. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to, you're going to have everything that the drugs promise but don't deliver. You'll have that in reality. I guarantee. Doing those things, having your faith stretched, being fully surrendered to the Lord, giving your heart to Jesus, nothing artificial even comes close to the excitement of living a life for Christ. Nothing even comes close to the excitement and the joy than than living for Jesus. Why don't you stand? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
Lord, I thank you that, uh, Lord, we see your sovereignty, even in, even in your judgment, Lord God. Uh, we see, we, last week we saw your mercy. This week, Lord, we see your sovereignty, that you're in control, that, uh, Lord, nothing can happen without you allowing it. And, Lord, we know uh, sometimes we wonder why you allow things that you allow. But, Lord, then we have to remember that you're a loving God and you love us. And you're a just God, and you're a righteous God, and Lord, you're you're wise, and your ways are, are are so much above ours. And so, Lord, may we, when we're in the situation, that we can just trust you. That Lord, you're doing what's right, and that Lord, we can rest in that trust, and rest in in you, and trust you, even in the midst of of things that we just can't understand, the darkness that we see around us. So, Lord, I thank you for revealing your sovereignty to us. Lord, I believe most people here have a relationship with you and they, they understand that Satan is a liar and a thief. But Lord, the world around us, Lord, they don't understand that. They don't see that Satan, that he's a, just a liar. And everything that he lies to us, it's just his goal is to destroy mankind. His goal is to destroy marriages, to destroy families. And so, Lord, I thank you that his true character is revealed in this chapter. And Lord, finally, we see man's heart. Lord, when we get to the end of this book, we know that when, when the great white throne judgment, uh, well, Lord, when you cast people into the lake of fire, Lord, it's a righteous judgment because mankind has had every opportunity to repent and to turn to you. And Lord, I pray for anyone this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, that they would see your heart in these, in what we've talked about this morning, that, Lord, your spirit would even be speaking to them now, that they might repent of their sins and turn to you, believe that you died on the cross and rose again from the dead, and that they might invite you in their hearts to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, for those of us that have a relationship with you, Lord, again, I, I just pray that it would stir us up, Lord, as we think of the torment and, and the lake of fire and those things, Lord, that it would stir us up, Lord, to want to share your love with the world around us, Lord God while there's still time. So we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing on your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.